If you've got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 2. Where we're going to be this morning as we kind of conclude this series of Advent messages. Uh, I want to remind you tonight, we'll be, or this afternoon, we'll be back in here for a, a, an evening of, of Christmas carols, communion, candlelight service, be a simple gospel message. Encourage you to be back with us, invite some friends and family. If they're in town, just bring them all, right? We'll fill up this room and uh, we'll have a great time singing together, sharing the Lord's table together, uh, and just remembering the gospel together. Uh, but this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, so I invite you to turn there as we read it together. Uh, if you got it on your phone, you got it on a tablet, you got a paper copy. If you don't have any of those, you can find it on the screen behind me. And so let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 1, and read down through verse 12. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, old wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we heard his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the peoples. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was." When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And, he re- he, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now as we approach December 31st, which is just... Seven short days away, right? And 2018 is on our doorstep. But as we approach December 31st, right, everyone, or lots of folks are trying to empty out their HSA accounts, okay? They got these healthcare funds stored up in an account somewhere that they got to use or lose. And one of the ways people are using them is by scheduling elective surgeries. And so the surgery centers across our nation this time of the year tend to be filled with all kinds of elective surgeries. And many of those elective surgeries that folks go in for this time of the year are what are known as minimally invasive procedures. Right Now, minimally invasive surgeries are a godsend, a gift of God's common grace to us because they allow doctors and physicians and surgeons to do procedures today that might have put somebody's life at risk a decade ago because they had, or two decades ago or three decades ago because they had to open them up in order to do it. But now they can go in, make a small incision and put a scope in, see what they're doing, repair what's going on, come out and everything is able to heal up and they're able to move forward with less recovery time, a minimal amount of pain, smaller incision sites, and less risk of infection. So minimally invasive procedures are great. And so if you and I were to go into a surgery center and they gave us a choice between a maximally invasive procedure where they say, you know what, we got to take a scalpel, we got to split you limb from limb, we got to open you up and go in and move stuff around and like re- repair things and then stitch you back up and then staple you up and cast you up and then you get to recover for six months. Who's signing up for that when you can have it done minimally, right? 
minimally invasive is the route to go. And there's nothing wrong with minimally invasive surgeries. However, it's human nature. Human nature means, a part of our human nature is that we not only prefer minimally invasive surgeries, we also prefer a minimally invasive savior. And yet the Bible doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow for a minimally invasive savior. But we prefer a minimally invasive savior, right? Who wouldn't choose to have a Jesus, right? Who, there's not much pain involved or associated, right? Makes very small incisions, very precise. He's not like a surgeon with a scalpel that opens us up limb from limb to reorient our lives. We want a minimally invasive Christ. Like, if, if, if you think of it this way, most of us, we want a, a, a Ricky Bobby Jesus, right? Remember Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights? That's the kind of Jesus that we have in mind, and particularly whenever we come at Christmas time. When we think of Jesus, right, we think of a tiny infant Jesus in his golden fleece diapers, right? You remember, you remember this, right, whenever he says grace there at the table, right? In his golden fleece diapers with a tiny little fat balled up fist who's eight pounds, six ounces, and doesn't even know a word yet, right? That's what we think of at Christmas when we think of Jesus, Right? That he's cute and cuddly and he stays that way all of his life. He's like an infant that we, we just kind of wrap up and hold. And he doesn't really make any demands, but he makes lots of deliveries in our lives. Right? He brings us lots of things, but expects nothing from us. Right? Whenever we think of Jesus, a minimally invasive Jesus, we like a Jesus who is like light. Right? We think of Jesus being the light of the world. But the light that we like at Christmas time is kind of like that soft, warm glow behind a frosted window pane. Not a laser that comes to cut and to cleanse and to cauterize and to remove our diseased heart and give us a new one. We want a Jesus who is meek and mild, but not a Jesus who rules and reigns. We prefer a minimally invasive Savior. We like our Jesus the same way we like our surgeries. right? And yet the Bible doesn't allow for that because Jesus has come for a purpose And the text that we just read together, it shows us that. It shows us that he's come for a purpose. And you see it whenever these magi, they come from the east. And they come with a particular response to Jesus. Now, oftentimes in this text, we tend to focus on the magi, don't we? And we focus on the gifts that they bring. And we kind of run down this list of gifts, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. And we give a description of where all that stuff's found and what it means and everything like that. But here's what I want you to see this morning. If you see nothing else this morning, here's what I want you to see. That the birth of Jesus elicits a response from people. And you see that it's not only the response of the Magi, but you see Herod has a response to Jesus' birth. And you see the chief priests and scribes, they have a response to Jesus' birth as well. And all of us, all of us have a response to Jesus' birth because Jesus was born for a purpose. And Matthew teaches us in his gospel that Jesus is born to rule. That's why he's come. Jesus is born to rule. Listen, when the Magi come from the east... They come seeking a king. They come to Jerusalem looking for a king because it had been prophesied. It had been prophesied all the way back in the book of Numbers. Right, if you go back into the book of Numbers, in the book of Numbers in chapters 20, 23, 24, and 25, you're going to find this guy by the name of Balaam who was a foreign prophet. That Balak, who was the king of Moab, he had hired Balaam to prophesy against Israel as Israel was moving from the land of Egypt and into the land of promise. So they're wandering in the wilderness and Balak says, listen, if I can pay you to speak ill toward Israel, to prophesy negatively toward Israel, here's your money, go get to work. 
And so whenever Balaam goes before the Lord and he seeks him, Balaam, the Lord speaks to Balaam, God shows up and speaks to Balaam, gives him oracles and visions, but they are not against Israel, but they were for Israel. And Balaam says, I cannot go against the Lord. And so he prophesies for God's people instead of against God's people. And one of those prophecies is in Numbers 24, verses 16 to 17. Listen to what it says. It says, The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Balaam's speaking about himself. God's given me an oracle. He's given me a vision. He's uncovered my eyes to see. And this is what I've seen. Verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Judah, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now here's what you have here. You have a foreign prophet who had been hired by a foreign king to prophesy evil against God's people, but he's prophesying for them, and he says, this is what I see. I see someone coming. He's not here yet. And he will rise out of Israel with a scepter with, to rule, right? A scepter is an implement, implement of ruling, of kingship, of thrones. But not only will he rise with a scepter, there will be a star that will rise out of Judah, and there would be a bright star that would shine to light his way. And he would have a scepter and he would rule over God's people and defeat all of God's enemies. Including you, Balak. <laughs> who have hired me and paid me. Thanks for the money, but I can't, I can't go there. Right, that's exactly what's going on in the text. And so you see that you have a foreign prophet from the east prophesying a ruler would emerge in connection with a star who would deliver God's people from his enemies. All the way back in Numbers. In addition, in Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 6, listen to what Isaiah says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. In Isaiah, you have a homegrown prophet now. A homegrown prophet who speaks of and foretells that the nations will be drawn to the light of God's people and the rising of one amongst his people and they would bring gifts. And then you fast forward to Matthew and what you see is that in Matthew's gospel you have the Magi from the east coming to Jerusalem at the dawning of, of, of this new era and age and the birth of Jesus bringing the very gifts that were prophesied in the book of Isaiah. And so when these Magi show up Listen, they don't come looking for a teacher or a therapist right, to help them work through all their problems and issues. They don't come looking for a philosopher or a psychologist. They don't come looking for a daytime talk show host right, who can give them some advice on dating or money and finance. Right, they come looking for a king. They come looking for a ruler, one with a scepter, one who would reign, one who would have a throne and would have dominion. Look in the text in verse 2. Whenever they ask, in verse 2 they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's what the Magi say when they show up in Jerusalem. Where's the king? 
In verse 4, when Herod submits an inquiry to the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. The term Christ in the Old Testament meant anointed one. And there were three categories of people in the Old Testament who were anointed. You had prophets, priests, and kings. Right, where, is the Christ, where is the Christ to be born, the king to be born? In verse 6, the chief priests and scribes point Herod and the Magi to Micah 5.2 that speaks of a ruler coming out of Bethlehem. So it's clear whenever these Magi show up that they're looking for a king and that Jesus and his arrival, his arrival is, even though it's without lots of pomp and circumstance, there's no parades going down the streets in Jerusalem when this king is born. But it is not without consequence. Is with, it happens with great consequence because this, in this child, the king of all creation, he breaks into human history. He's born and is clothed in flesh to establish his kingdom. They come looking for a king. Make no mistake about it because Jesus is born to rule. That is his purpose. And listen, when Jesus shows up, I want you to hear this clearly this morning. When Jesus shows up and he makes his arrival into the world, he comes to stake out claim on all that he has created. And what that means is this. He comes to stake out claim on all our mental ground, all the thoughts of our minds. He comes to stake out claim on all of our physical ground, all the deeds and actions of our bodies. He comes to stake out claim on all of our emotional ground, on all of our spiritual ground, financial ground, relational ground, everything that makes you a human being created in the image of God who lives in the world that God has made. He comes to stake out claim on all of it as the one who was born to rule. And yet, we have issue with that. (laughs) We have issue with that, and you see it in the way that the people respond in Matthew chapter 2 to the arrival of this king. There's at least three responses in Matthew chapter 2, and I want you to see them this morning. I want you to consider where it is in your life, what kind of response you've given to this king who's come to rule and stake out claim on your life, all your life. The first response that you see in the text is that of indifference. You see, for some, Jesus is just like an answer to a trivia question, right? To some kind of biblical or historical trivia, right? You see it in the response of the chief priests and scribes. See, the chief priests in Jesus' day were representatives of Jewish worship, right? They conducted the affairs of the temple. They made offerings and sacrifices. The people came to them for them to mediate the relationship between them and God, The chief priests were representatives of Jewish worship, but the scribes were the representatives of the Jewish law. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the prophets, the writings. They knew it all backwards and forwards. They could cite it from memory. Right? You think, man, I have a hard time memorizing one verse, right? They they memorized the entire Old Testament, and they were experts on it. But I want you to consider those who facilitated worship in the temple and those who knew God's commands and his laws backwards and forwards, look at how they respond to Jesus. These are men who knew the Old Testament inside and out and they knew exactly where to point the Magi whenever they came from the east and said, where's the king? Where's he to be born? They knew exactly where to send them. Send them to Bethlehem, but they themselves do nothing to receive him. They do nothing to receive him. Look, when Herod turns to them and asks them, hey, where's, where's the, the Christ to be born? Herod has no idea. He's kind of a puppet king Roman put there in Jerusalem. But where's the Christ to be born? He turns and asks, it's like all these guys are standing behind podiums, right? And it's like clergy week on Jeopardy, right? And they've got little buzzers and they're like, what is the town of Bethlehem of Judea, Right? 
That's, that's, that's the degree of response they make to the arrival of this king. He's like a trivia question for them. That is the response of the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. Right? And that is the response of many people in our day. And for them, Jesus is nothing more than an answer to trivia questions, some historical facts or figures. And whenever they think about Jesus, it doesn't warm their heart, it doesn't inflame their heart into worship, it doesn't inflame their heart into adoration, but there's just an indifference there. Because for them, Jesus is trivial. He may have played some part in your life growing up, right? You may have memories of growing up in church and growing up in Sunday school, but right now, today, there is an indifference towards Jesus, Right? We you don't gather with the people of God. We don't read the word of God. We don't get on our knees before God. We don't offer up our prayers and petitions to him. We don't give him praise. We don't adore him. We don't worship him. But there is an indifference toward him. And this is particularly true of those who live in what we would call the buckle of the proverbial Bible belt. Right? I meet people all the time who would, if you ask them if they are a Christian, they would check a box and affirm some kind of statement like these scribes, like these chief priests. They would say, yes, I believe these certain things to be true, but it has no impact or influence. It doesn't shape the way that they live in any degree or form. Right? Because there's an indifference towards Jesus. An old Anglican bishop by the name of J.C. Ryle, he said this, he said, how often... The very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them most. There is only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the further from God. Familiarity with sacred things has a dreadful tendency to make men despise them. There are many who from residence and convenience ought to be first and foremost in the worship of God and yet are always last there are many who might well be expected to be last who are always first. That's a convicting statement. A convicting statement. Listen, some of us have been raised in church or in proximity to the church. We've been in the church all of our lives. We remember Sunday school classes. We remember VBS. We were taught the Bible stories. We remember the flannel board, right? With people moving across the, 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 the thing and being stuck to the different places. Right? We remember those things. We remember private Christian education for some of us. Right? We had preteen camps. We had retreats. We had youth camps that we attended. Whenever we graduated high school, maybe we were involved in some kind of college ministry. Maybe we've been in church in different, different denom- maybe different denominations and in different locations as God's moved us from place to place. And yet, and yet, there is still an indifference to Jesus because we never really come to terms with the fact that he was born to rule. And it demands a response from us. See, Ryle says, listen, those who are nearest, those who are nearest to God's means of grace are oftentimes those who neglect them the most. Listen, I don't know about you, but I've got a Bible on my phone. I've got a Bible on my tablet. I've got a Bible on my computer. I've got this hard copy, and I've got about four or five other hard copies of different translations in my home. And listen, if one translation doesn't work for you, there is another translation that you can probably find that's readable for you based on where you are and how you understand things. And we live in a day and time where it's accessible and available. It's free most times on apps on your phone. But listen, it's those of us who have been inundated with the means of God's grace. It's like they flooded over us and we have all kinds of opportunity to avail ourselves of them who neglect them most. And it's those who are in the bushes 
of other countries around the world who may have fragments of the Bible translated into their language who read it over and over and over and over and devour it. I wonder how much of an indifference has crept into North Texas Christianity when it comes to our response to Jesus. Is that you? Is there an indifference this morning? Look at the second response. It's that of Herod. It's that of Herod. You see, whenever the wise men show up, the Magi roll into Jerusalem. They begin to inquire about where the king of the Jews has been born. And Herod responds. His response is interesting. Because Herod is, Herod is incredibly threatened by Jesus. And so he responds not with indifference, but with opposition. Or with hostility. That is Herod's response. He is hostile toward this king who has come to rule. Look at, how, look at what he says. Herod's response in the text is he legitimately feels threatened by the birth of Jesus and he goes eventually on a genocidal quest to ensure that his rule, that his throne would endure the birth of this king. In fact, the, the Magi are warned by God in a dream not to return through Jerusalem and to Herod to tell him where the child has been born. So they go around Jerusalem a different way and they go home. And whenever Herod learns and figures out that he's been betrayed by these magi, he is enraged. And you read further down on Luke 2, and here's what he does. He gathers all of his troops, and he sends them on the five to six mile hike to Bethlehem. And he says, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to slaughter every male child under the age of two in Bethlehem. Because my rule, my reign, will not be opposed. It will not be threatened by this one who has been born king of the Jews. That is Herod's response. He is incredibly threatened by Jesus. And listen, there are some who continue to be threatened by him today. There are some who continue today to respond with opposition and hostility because they are threatened by Jesus because they don't want to give up control. Right? They don't want to play in the second chair. They want the first chair. Right? They don't want to be in the back seat. They want to be in the driver's seat of their lives. Right? And they're, they're threatened by Jesus because they don't want to give up their control. And listen, you, you, there, there, this, is, this, this opposition and hostility exists not only outside the church because many of us are like, yeah, man, there's a war on Christmas and it's going on. It's been going on for 20 years. Can't even say Merry Christmas anymore, right? You have that kind of mentality. But I want you to know that the war on Christmas began the moment that Jesus was born. The moment he was born. And it has continued from generation to generation to generation. This is nothing new. And so we decry this, this war on Christmas outside the church, this hostility toward Jesus outside the church, but I wonder how much of it also exists inside the church. Douglas O'Donnell said this. He said, people pack pews each Sunday, but they live as though there is no king upon the throne but them. So for some of us, we might say, man, I'm in church all the time. Man, I'm here every, every Sunday. I'm here whenever we have gatherings and whenever we do outreaches and I serve. In the, we do all those things. We pack the chairs. But I wonder who's actually ruling your heart. Because I wonder how much of our response to Jesus is, yes, Lord, 
Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. So long as it aligns with our agenda, so long as it aligns with our goals, and so long as it aligns with our purposes. But as soon as it begins to cut against the grain of those things, I wonder how many of us grab a hold of our lives and our knuckles turn white because we're holding them so tightly because we don't want to give up control. Right, that's, where, that's the response you see of Herod. And I wonder if that's some of us this morning. I wonder if there are areas that God's been pressing on your life over the course of 2017 and you're, just, you're white knuckling those areas of your life because you don't want to relinquish them. You don't want to give them up. You don't want to let go of control. See, the response of some is indifference. The response of others is hostility. But I want you to see the third response and that's that of the Magi in the text of these wise men who come from the east. They do not respond with indifference and they do not respond with hostility, but they respond with adoration and worship because Jesus to them is not trivial and they are not threatened by him, but Jesus is their treasure. He's their treasure. That's man, like a soundtrack to the sermon this morning. He is their treasure. And so look at how they respond. The Magi's response, Matthew sets like a brilliant gem in contrast to all the indifference of the chief priests and scribes and against all the hostility and opposition of Herod. The Magi come to the infant Jesus and they approach him. By now, Jesus is probably not necessarily uh, it, no longer lying in the manger. He's probably a young boy now who maybe even taken some steps as a toddler. But they come to this young Jesus and they recognize his rightful position. They bow their knee before him and they offer up gifts and adoration and worship and they give him gifts of gold which are fit for royalty all throughout the bible they give him the gift of frankincense which is a connection to deity and the offerings that were made and presented as it rose up to god and they give him the gift of myrrh which was embalming fluid which is spices that his body was wrapped in whenever he was killed, which is in reference to his humanity. They give him these gifts. But listen, we can go into those gifts much further, but here's what I want you to see about the gifts is this. is whenever the Magi, it says, when they came to see Jesus, they opened up their what? Their treasure. And from their treasures, they gave him gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. In other words, what they lay at the feet of Jesus was extravagant and costly. As they brought him their adoration, as they brought him their worship, as they came and recognized his rightful position as king of all creation who staked claim on their lives. Their gifts were the acknowledgement that what the response that Jesus demands is one that is extravagant and costly because Jesus, listen, Jesus doesn't just want pieces and parts of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of me. He wants us on our knees before him in adoration and in worship. That's the response that Matthew highlights here. And if this is true, listen, this is the only logical response. Some of you are like, man, I'm really rational and logical. I'm not very emotional. I don't get caught up in all the feelings and laying my... But listen, if you're, if you're la- rational and logical, I want you to consider something. If the Son of God 
If the second person of the divine trinity wrapped himself in flesh and became a child who would grow to live a perfect and sinless life and die a sinner's death, rise from the dead, ascend to the heavens, and wait the command of the Father to one day return again. If this is what took place at Christmas, then the only logical response to God who was clothed in flesh is to come before him and say, God, I'm pushing all my chips to the center of the table. I'm going all in on Jesus and I'm all his. Every part of my life, every facet, crook and cranny, every crevice, it all belongs to him. That's the only logical response if God clothed himself in flesh and came as a baby. That's the only rational response. And what that means is this, is that there's no person who can say, man, I kind of like Jesus. I just kind of like him, right? Like a Facebook page. I see Jesus' Facebook page and I just kind of peruse on over there and I click the like button and I just like Jesus. I follow him, man. He says some cool things. He has some cool teachings. That's, that's not at all a Christian response. There is no one who can just like Jesus, but the response is, I'm gonna throw all of my weight and all of my life for all of my life at his feet and say, do with me what you will. I am yours. That's the response that Matthew highlights here. It's not one of opposition, and it's not one of indifference, but it's one of adoration. Now, if you're here this morning, as we close, what I want to say is this, is that you may be here, man, maybe, go, maybe the Holy Spirit's begun to open your eyes. That's how, that's how God works, right? Through the exposure to Scripture, the Holy Spirit takes those Scriptures and He begins to peel back the layers of scales on our eyes and begins to show us, maybe you're a one who has lived with an indifference. Maybe you have some familiarity with Jesus, but He's just some trivia question to you. And God is showing you that. Or maybe God's showing you there's been hostility in areas of your life that he's been putting his finger on over and over and over again that you just continue to refuse to relinquish control of and you're white-knuckling it. And if that's you this morning, the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see your indifference or opened your eyes to see your hostility. And maybe you're asking yourself the question, if I really come to him right now, this king who was born, if I really come and offer my life up to him, how will he respond to me? Despite all, with my history of indifference and my history of hostility, how will this king receive me? This one who was born to rule. And what I want you to know is this, is that not only Jesus was he born to rule, but he was born to rule as a shepherd king. As a shepherd king. And that makes all the difference in the world. Look, in Matthew, in, in, in Matthew chapter 2, at the very center of the text, there's a citation from Micah 5 in verse 2 where the Magi discover from the chief priests and the scribes where the king was to be born. And in that text in Micah, it tells us not only that he would be the king and where he would be born, but it also tells us something of the nature of his rule. Listen to what he says. In the latter part of Micah's prophecy, we're told that Jesus would be a ruler who would shepherd my people Israel. A ruler who would shepherd, a king who would guide and protect and feed. Listen, throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as the shepherd of Israel. God himself is the one who shepherded them. Consider this, in Psalm 68, God is the shepherd who goes before the flock. In Psalm 23, he guides it, leads it to food and water and protects it. And in Isaiah 40, this shepherd, uh, he, he carries his young on his shoulders 
So what Micah does is this. Listen, this is so beautiful because in Jesus, here's what you have. You have two things being held together that you cannot hold together any other way. You have a scepter and a shepherd's crook being held together. One who came to rule and one who came to rule as a shepherd, as a shepherd king. You don't typically think of thrones and palaces and fields and sheep in the same equation, do you? I don't think of it that way. You don't think of it that way. None of us think of it that way. But in Jesus, those two things which seem to be pulled apart by their very nature are brought together and fused. And fused. That he came to be a shepherd king. And listen, when Jesus shows up, there was lots of shepherds in Israel. They were shepherds in the fields. And there were shepherds in the temple. But Jesus would be called the good shepherd because he cared for his sheep. And so here's what you see in the incarnation and Jesus becoming flesh and God being clothed in humanity. You see a declaration, listen, of, the, of a shepherd king coming to rule and coming to guide and coming to feed and coming to protect and coming to care and coming to carry you Close to his heart, you see an expression of his never-ending, never-stopping, unbreakable, always and forever love. That's what you see in Jesus when he shows up. In the 1860s, a guy by the name of Samuel John Stone, he wrote a hymn entitled, The Church is One Foundation. And I want you to hear what he says in the first verse of that hymn. He says, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. From heaven he came and sought. He wasn't a king who came and set up his throne and said, Just come on. Come on when you get a chance. Come on. He is a king who came and then he took up the scepter and the crook and he went out into the fields and he's been gathering up sheep all of his days because he came to seek and save that which was lost, including me and including you. And so if you're here this morning and you're asking yourself the question, this, with my past and history of indifference and my history of hostility toward Jesus, how would he respond to me if I come to him Here's what I want you to know, is that Jesus stands ready to receive you just as you are with all your flaws and failures, all your warts and all your worries, all of your indifference and all of your hostility. He stands ready to receive you just as you are if you will receive him just as he is. Listen, in 2015, Disney produced a live action remake of the story Cinderella. You guys seen it? Right? Um, it, was, it was a beautiful production. Beautiful production. But at the end of that story, I, was, I, was, I, I continue, every time I see it, I continue to be drawn into this one scene. At the end of that story, there's a beautiful picture of the gospel because you have the prince who's coming and pursuing Cinderella. He's looking for this girl that he danced with at the ball. He can't find her anywhere. And finally, this last manner that they are searching, as they search high and low throughout the kingdom, looking for Cinderella, she happens to be up in the tower. Right? And she's brought down. And as she's brought down to meet the prince, who is now the king because his father has died, so you have the king now standing in her den or in her parlor. And as Cinderella comes down the stairs, ready to meet the prince who's now the king, she has no magic to help her. There's no ball gown. There's no slipper. Right? Her hair's not like 
beautiful and fixed and curled and whatever you ladies do with that stuff, right? It's, it doesn't look like that at all. Right? She is not put together and dressed for success at this moment. And as she comes down the stairs, the narrator kicks in. And listen to what he says. It's one of the most penetrating questions I've ever heard in my life. It says, the narrator kicks in and says, would who she was, who she really was, be enough? There's no magic to help her this time. This is perhaps the greatest risk any of us will ever take to be seen as we truly are. And as she walks around the corner, the prince looks her in the eye and says, who are you? And she says, Cinderella, and I'm no princess, and I have no carriage, no parents, and no dowry. I don't even know if that slipper that you're holding will fit. But if it will, will you take me as I am? And the prince looks back at her, and he makes this statement, of course I will. But only if you will take me as I am, an apprentice who's still learning his trade. Now, the first time I saw that, I thought, man, it's beautiful. And then it hit that part at the end of an apprentice still learning his trail. I was like, Psh, Jesus is not an apprentice, right? He doesn't have anything to learn from anyone, right? He's an expert on everything. But then it hit me. Here is a prince who is now the king and ruling over all the kingdom, but he's a king who is clothed in humility, wrapped and dripping with it. And Jesus I want you to know, church, that he's a king. He is born to rule as a shepherd king who is, seeking, who is seeking you with his very life and with his very blood and with his very grace. He's going door to door, knocking on doors, looking for those who are his own to claim them as his children, as his sons and daughters. And whenever you round the corner and you see him and you say, will he take me as I am? as I really am, with all my indifference and all my hostility, I want you to know that he says, I will receive you just as you are if you will receive me just as I am, as the king, and you will let me open you up and put you on the table and give you a new heart and raise you to life and begin to reorient your life and all your priorities would now revolve around me. All of your affections would be centered upon me. All of your adoration would be given to me. If you would take me as I am as your king and let me rule your life of course I will take you as I as you are of course I will because he's a king who is dripping in humility who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very form of a servant and being found in human likeness he laid his life down he served you to the point of death and so when you come to him and say would he really take me he's able to say, of course I will. So how do you respond to Jesus this Christmas? Is he just trivial to you? Are you threatened by him? Or has the gospel gospel melted your heart and made him into your treasure? Would you pray with me? Father, we come today hearts overflowing with gratitude and joy hearts filled with praise and adoration Father hearts that in the past may have been filled with indifference or hostility but I know there are those in the room who today are 
their heart is leaping out of their chest as they think about the beauty and glory of the gospel, of the humility of Jesus who clothed himself in our humanity all the way to the cross and he was raised that we might know the fullness of eternal life. Father, if there are those in the room this morning who have responded to your son with indifference all of their life, Maybe they know some facts and figures about your son. Maybe they have had exposure to him, but they've never, they've never passed from death to life. They've never crossed over the threshold of faith. They've never placed their life at his feet and said, use me, all of me, for your glory. Open me up and give me a new heart. God, I pray this morning and this Christmas, it might be their time. You might be knocking on their door. Father, for those who have sought to retain control of their lives and have white-knuckled areas of their life, Father, I pray, God, I pray that your spirit would melt their resistance. And I pray that it would punch through the walls that they have erected. They would be torn down so that your son is no longer a threat to them, but he is their treasure. And this Christmas, may we have the confidence to come before him boldly and approach the throne of grace because he is willing to take us just as we are if we are willing to take him just as he is. May you open us up this Christmas. and be as maximally invasive as necessary. We pray in Jesus' name.